Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this morning we'll be looking at uh, verses 4 through 8. But just to uh, remind you of the context, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And these are words written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to build up our faith and to encourage the saints and edify us. So please give a careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So last week we looked at the first three verses where Paul describes the the second coming of Christ and calls it the day of the Lord. I think they're one and the same. And he described it in terms of what it means to unbelievers. For them, Christ's coming is like a thief in the night. It will catch them off guard. There will be no warning. It will come also upon them like labor pains, and there will be no escape. The day of the Lord will be a day of judgment for the unbeliever. And now starting in verse 4, the Apostle Paul is now going to reference the day of the Lord as it relates to the church. So the day of the Lord, as I understand it, will occur at the end of this future tribulation period. The day of the Lord is the same as the second coming. And when the day of the Lord comes, the unbelievers will be judged at that time. So it occurs at the end of the tribulation period. It doesn't refer to the whole tribulation period. This is also exactly what Paul will say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When he says that the day of the Lord will not come until two things take place. Number one, the apostasy within the church. And number two, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. And then when Christ comes back on the day of the Lord, He will judge the man of lawlessness. So it all takes place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So now starting in verse 4, Paul is viewing the, uh, the day of the Lord, the second coming, in terms of its relationship to the church. 
And he emphasizes very emphatically that the church will not be like the unbelievers. We will not be caught off guard because the day of the Lord will not come upon us like a thief. Why is that? Because we have certain signs, general signs, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostasy, the revelation of the man of lawlessness, that will give us some idea of the nearness of His coming. But we don't know for sure when that is. But because we are not unbelievers, we will not be caught off guard. The day of the Lord will not be like a thief to the church. It will only be like a thief to unbelievers. So that's the point he's going to emphasize. So if you look at this, and also it won't catch us off guard because the church will be watching and alert and waiting for His coming. So we're expecting it where the unbelievers are not. So notice the contrast again in verse 3, moving into verse 4. It says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Obviously, these are unbelievers in view. It will come on them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So again, the day of the Lord comes like a thief upon unbelievers. But then look at verse 4. It's very emphatic. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. So now he's emphasizing the contrast that believers will not be caught off guard. The day of the Lord is not coming for them like a thief because they are actually not in the darkness. They're not in darkness. They're in light. They're going to be watching and waiting. So when the Lord does come, We're going to be anticipating His return. Now it's interesting in uh, verse 4 and 5, Paul says, But you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. I want to make a a comment. My dispensational friends that believe in a pre-trib rapture, which I don't think is taught, in my opinion, believe that the light and, the, and the, the day versus the night and the darkness refer to two separate time periods. And some of them will interpret it that the, the period of darkness and the period of night refers to the tribulation period. The church, on the other hand, belongs to a period of time of light and day. And we're going to be raptured up seven years before the second coming, so that we don't enter into this time period of darkness and night. And that's the way they interpret this. The problem, I think, several problems with that. Number one in verse 4, if that's what Paul meant and if that's what he believed, he should have said, but you brethren will not enter into darkness. But that's not what he says. He says you are not in darkness. And that's an entirely different idea. Most commentaries that uh, look at this passage say that the light and the darkness don't refer to separate time periods, but to two separate spiritual realms that occur at the same time. So that at any point in time, you're either in the darkness as an unbeliever 
or you're in the light as a believer. That these are two separate spiritual realms that coexist together at the same time. And this is why I think we we find in the way Paul and the other apostles use this metaphor of light and darkness. For example, in Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So some people are in the darkness and some people are in the light at the same time. There are two spiritual dimensions that both occur at the same time. We used to be in the realm of darkness, but by the grace of God, now we're in the realm of light. But a lot of people are still in the realm of darkness. So these are two spiritual spheres that exist at the same time. They're not two separate time periods. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1. That the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we used to be in the domain of darkness, but now Christ has taken us out of darkness and put us as saints in light. Now we're in the spiritual sphere of light. But there's still others at this very same time that are in the domain of darkness. Two separate spiritual conditions that occur at the same time. Peter says the same thing. That we're to proclaim the excellencies, excellencies of Him and called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's a realm of darkness that unbelievers are in. There's a realm of light that believers are in. They both exist at the same time. They're not two separate time periods. John says the same thing in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. If a brother says that he, he, he's in the light, but he hates his brother, he's in the darkness. But the one who loves his brother is in the light. Again, two separate spiritual realms that exist at the same time. And really, they're getting this from the Lord Jesus Himself. Remember in John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So either, even at this point in time, you're either walking in the darkness or you're walking in the light of life. Two spiritual realms that coexist at the same time. And I think that's how the Apostle Paul is using this analogy. He's saying to the church, when the day of the Lord comes, when Christ comes back, it will not come upon you like a thief in the night because you're not in darkness. You're not in that unbelieving, unregenerate spiritual realm. You belong to Christ. You're in the light. You're a son of light and a son of day. We are not of the light nor the darkness. So when Christ comes back, it's not going to catch us like a thief coming because we're going to be alert. We're going to be watchful because we're in light. Unbelievers are in darkness. So that's the point I think that he's making uh, with with these metaphors. Notice also in verse 5, he says, to the church at Thessalonica, you are all sons of light and sons of day. Every believer is characterized as being a son of light and a son of day. 
And this is the reason why the day of the Lord will not overtake them like a thief or catch us off guard. Because we're sons of light. So we're going to be alert. We're going to be watchful. We're going to be waiting because we are sons of light and sons of day. Also, all believers will participate in the day of the Lord because we are sons of day. We're sons of light. So when the day of the Lord comes, we're bonded to the light that Christ brings when He comes a second time. So we will enter into the light of His eternal glory. So we are, we are one with the day of the Lord in that sense. The day comes at the second coming and we're sons of day. So we're going to be entering into the, to the light and the glory that Christ brings on that particular day. Okay, now starting, if you notice uh, again, starting in verse 6, he says, So then... Let us not sleep as others do, like all the unbelievers who are in the darkness. Let us not sleep like they do, but let us be alert and sober. Now it's interesting how verse 6 and following verse 4 and 5, notice the logical connection here. In verse 4 and 5, he basically told them what they are in Christ. You're not in the darkness, believer. You are sons of light and sons of day. That's who you are now by the grace of God. So he told them who they were in Christ. And now in verse 6, this is the practical impact of those truths. This is the effect it should have on us. So then, let us not sleep. Let us be alert and sober. And really, this is the, the thing that you find often in Paul's letters where he has a section on the indicative where he lays out the facts of what we are in Christ followed by a section on the imperative. Therefore, do this and do that. It's the indicative in verse 4 and 5. We're not in darkness like the unbelievers. We are sons of light, sons of day, while they're in the darkness and they belong to the night. And based upon that truth, which is true for every believer, therefore let your life be consistent with who you are in Christ. What you have in Christ. So there's a beautiful connection here. Paul does the very same thing in Romans chapter 6. He starts out with facts about what has happened to us in Christ. We have died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. So therefore, don't go back to your old life, Paul says. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Same thing. Starts with the indicative statements of fact about what we are in Christ, followed by the imperative, the exhortations of how we're now supposed to live our life. And that's what he's doing here. It's kind of Paul's literary pattern that you see in so many of his letters. Now notice uh, in verse 6, He's now telling them how they're supposed to live in anticipating the day of the Lord. Now this is very applicable to us because the exact same things apply to us today. Paul is giving the church at Thessalonica in the following verses 6-8 through and really all the way down through verse 10 three different ways that we are to be prepared for the coming of Christ. Three different ways we anticipate the day of the Lord. 
The first one, he says in verse 6, is let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert or awake. So don't be asleep. Be awake. Be alert. So he's telling the church, when the second coming comes, you need to be watchful. You need to be alert. Don't be asleep like the unbelievers. Be awake. Be alert to the coming of the Lord. And I think this fits because believers are sons of day and sons of light. Therefore, we should be spiritually awake. If you're a child of the darkness and of the night, well then, what normally describes people at nighttime? They're asleep. We're not like that, Paul says. Therefore, do not sleep as others do, like the unbelievers who are in the darkness, but be alert. So that's the first thing. Now, where did he get this, uh, this exhortation? This first way that we're to be prepared for the Lord's coming? Well, he gets it from the Lord Jesus. Jesus exhorted His disciples oftentimes to be on the alert when He comes. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Matthew 25, 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Mark 13. Be on the alert, for you do not know when the Master of the house is coming. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So Jesus was continually exhorting His disciples, be on the alert. When the Lord comes back, be watchful. Be on the alert. Because that's what characterized sons of light and sons of day. We're not sleeping like those who are in the nighttime and in darkness, in the spiritual realm of night and darkness. But rather, be on the alert. So he's exhorting them that because of who you are, by the grace of God, you are a son of light and a son of day, therefore act like it. Be alert. Live your life with a, with, a, with, with a watchfulness knowing that someday Christ will come back. Now those who, on the other hand, are spiritually asleep, how does that describe someone? If you're spiritually asleep. Well, you're, you're numb. You're indifferent. You're out of touch. You're unaware, you're unconscious of the true spiritual realities that are going on because you're, you're spiritually asleep. You live your life as if there's no second coming. You live your life as if there's no judgment day. You're spiritually asleep. You're just kind of sleepwalking through your life and you're totally consumed with the things of the world. That's being spiritually asleep. And because of that, they're unprepared and when the day of the Lord comes, it catches them like a thief because they're not anticipating it. They're not living in light of the glory of Christ's return. So believers, on the other hand, are to be characterized as being awake and aware, observant, watching. We should not be spiritually sleepy-headed like unbelievers are. We're to live a sanctified life. We're aware that Christ is returning at some point. And we're watchful. We have our lamps burning. We have our loins girded. We don't know when He's going to come back, but we're living our life in light of the fact that we are sons of light and sons of day. Now, why are we to be alert? 
Paul is exhorting them to be alert. Why should we be alert? Well, number one, we don't know when Christ is going to come back. We know some general things. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostasy, revelation of the man of lawlessness. But we still don't know exactly when that's going to be, so we don't know, so we need to be alert. Could He come back in our lifetime? Certainly possible. Another reason why we should be alert is that we have enemies who are trying to drag us down so that our light is not shining for Christ. So we need to be alert not only for the coming of Christ, but just alert because we have enemies around us that would like to drag us off into some sin. Notice how the Apostle Peter uses the same two words that Paul is using, sober and alert. We'll look at sober in a minute. But he tells his readers to be of sober spirit, be on the alert, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we need to be alert secondly because there are spiritual enemies that want to tempt us and trip us up and ruin our testimony and get us all sidetracked so that we're not living for Christ. Be on the alert, believer. That's the second reason. A third reason for why we need to be alert is because that reflects our spiritual condition of being in the light. If we are in the light, therefore we should live as sons of light. We are to live spiritually awake Christian lives in tune with what God is doing. We are to be pursuing the Lord and let our life reflect the fact that we are walking and living in the light. The truth of the Gospel. That we are following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are And that should be worked out in our life. And if it's not, then there are certainly problems there. So the church is to be alert for the day of the Lord's return. Now this also is, a, I think, a strong argument again for a post-tribulation rapture. Not a pre-tribulation rapture. If the second coming is the day of the Lord, which I believe it is, I think this context is when unbelievers are judged in verse 2 and 3, so it's clearly at the end. 2 Thessalonians 2 puts it at the end when Christ comes to destroy the man of lawlessness. So that's when the day of the Lord occurs. And, it, and it, it's an interesting argument. Why then... If the church is raptured out seven years before the day of the Lord, why is he exhorting them to be on the alert and to be watchful? If they're going to be gone seven years before Christ comes back. You see the problem with that. The very fact that he's exhorting them to be watching and waiting and alert to the second coming certainly implies that they are in that tribulation and they will be on the earth when Christ does come back for his second coming. Otherwise, there's no point in exhorting them to be watching and to be alert because they're going to be gone seven years before the day of the Lord occurs. So to me, it's another argument in favor of a post trib rapture. Okay, so 
what are some of the dangers of being sleepy-headed? Let's face it, even though we're sons of light and sons of day, sometimes we can become a little sleepy in terms of our Christian lives. And what are some of the dangers of that? Well, it's interesting, uh, and I'm borrowing some of this from Richard Phillips in his commentary, but he says there's a lot of uh, examples in the Bible that warn us not to be sleeping when we should be awake. And you can apply this spiritually to the way we should live our lives. The first one are the, uh, the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus was arrested, when Judas brought the band and they came and arrested the Lord before that, the Lord exhorted His disciples and He said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And how did they respond? They fell asleep, right? Christ came back and woke them up. He said, watch and pray so you don't enter into temptation. How did they respond? Fell asleep again. And again a third time. And that's when Judas and the band arose and they were totally caught off guard because they were asleep. And consequently, they were unprepared and consequently, they all ran and fled from the Lord when He was arrested. You see, there's an application for us as believers today that if we grow sleepy-headed and we're really not thinking about eternity and we're thinking about heaven and the coming of Christ and we just get so bogged down in our day-to-day life that we become kind of numb to, to the true spiritual realities of life, then we're going to fall into temptation. And even though we're of the light, assuming we're a true believer, we're of the light and of the day, at times we can become sleepy-headed and become unconcerned about the things that really matter. We can become so entangled in the things of the world that our focus on life becomes blurred so that we're not praying for missionaries We're not praying for those who are witnessing for the Gospel in our communities. We're not praying for our church leaders that they would be faithful to the Gospel. We're not praying for parents that are trying to raise their kids in a very ungodly environment of the world. They're not praying for our civil leaders that God would, would bring in decline a lot of the values that they're pushing and transforming our culture with. We're asleep. We're oblivious. We're asleep at the, at the helm. We're acting like unbelievers in the darkness. And we should not because we're in the realm of light, in the realm of day. But when believers begin to imitate those in the darkness, then we become vulnerable to temptations like the disciples fell into because they were sleeping when they should have been awake. What happened to Samson when he fell asleep on the knees of Delilah? When he should have been awake? What happened to Samson? He not only lost his hair and his strength, they gouged out his eyes because he was sleeping when he should have been awake. And there are times even when believers can bring great 
harm to our Christian life when we are living sleepy-headed lives and Christ is not in the center, the core. He's out there on the edges somewhere in our life and we're not very committed to Him. How about the parable of the tares and the wheat? You know that parable. It was one that Jesus told that a man sowed good seed in his field But while his servants were sleeping, notice that, while they were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. So when they were sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed in all the the weeds, the tares, the thistles, and and it just weakened and corrupted the wheat that that he had planted. And what a lesson for the leaders of the church not to be sleepy-headed. Because when the church slumbers, the enemy comes and sows error and apostasy within God's vineyard. When the church sleeps, she becomes tolerant to anything and everything that's going on in the culture and we bring it in as a part of our worship. That sleepy-headedness The church will lose its light because they don't uphold doctrinal guardrails. There's no discernment. But rather, there's there's an openness to embrace the values of the world and the values of our culture and try to sanctify it in the name of Christ. And of course, the result is the church loses its light. The lampstand is removed. And it becomes populated with unregenerate creatures of darkness when the leaders of the church fall asleep. A sad example of this going on today is with uh, the church pastored by Andy Stanley. Uh, Next month in September, they will be hosting a family conference entitled Unconditional conference. Andy Stanley pastors a church of about 38,000 people that are spread out over eight locations, a very, very huge church. But this family conference is for parents who have LGBTQ children. On, On one hand, there could be a great ministry there, but all the speakers of this conference are gay-affirming and pro-homosexual. Some radically so. Two of the speakers are married to their husbands. They're men married to their husbands. And the conference itself is put on by Embracing the Journey, which is a radical gay-affirming ministry that is going to partner with the church to put on this family conference. Not only has that church gone to sleep, they are dead. And when churches abandon the light, they embrace the darkness and are doomed to inherit the darkness. This is is the danger of sleepy-headedness. And this is why the Apostle Paul is so strenuously exhorting them, so let us not sleep as others do. 
Let us be alert. Let us be sober. The second uh, exhortation, the second way to be prepared for the coming of the day of the Lord, the first one is don't be asleep, be awake, be alert. The second one that Paul gives is to be sober. In other words, be clear-headed about life and truth. Have sound reasoning. Seek to live your life to please Christ. And don't just be intoxicated by all the pleasures and the things of the world. Those drunk on the sins of the world are numb to the things of God and they, because they're creatures of night and creatures of darkness. And the children of light should not walk like drunk children of darkness. So Paul says to the church, look, the day of the Lord is coming. Don't be asleep, be awake, be, be alert, and be sober. Don't drink the Kool-Aid of the world. Don't let it influence your thinking and to embrace things that are contrary to what God says in His Word. He goes and elaborates on that in verse 7 and 8 when he says, for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, we're in a different spiritual realm. All the people in darkness, they're sleeping now. They're drunk now. But we're of the day. We're of the light. So let us be sober. So he's exhorting them again. He repeats it therefore twice. That we're to be sober-minded and not drunk like those who live in darkness and are of the night. We should not be characterized by the activities of those who are in spiritual darkness. So, in being prepared for the day of the Lord, number one, be alert, don't be asleep. Number two, be sober. And then finally, and number his third exhortation is to put on the armor of God and use your armor well. Notice in verse 8, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So now he's saying, okay, be alert. Don't be asleep. Be sober. Don't be intoxicated by all the, the lusts of the world. And thirdly, put on the armor of God and wear it well. Wear it well. So he mentions putting on the breastplate and putting on the helmet. And this is to help us stay ready for the coming of Christ by putting on this armor. It's to help defend us from the attacks of the world. We need the armor of God. We need the breastplate. We need the helmet. Calvin appropriately noted that the armor illustration that Paul uses indicates that the Christian life is a perpetual war. And I think that's true. So as we are waiting for the day of the Lord to come, we are in a battle. We have enemies that want to take us down, to ruin our witness, to sidetrack us. So we need the armor of God. And it's also interesting that what does the breastplate protect? Your heart. What does the helmet protect? Your head, 
or your mind. So our heart needs to be protected. Remember Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So we need to wear that breastplate. But our helmet, our mind, our thinking also needs to be protected. Remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we got to fight to do that because naturally our mind is going to wander. And Paul says, take every thought captive to Christ. So the breastplate is comprised of two things in this analogy. It's interesting how Paul changes up the analogies. You read Ephesians 6, it's a bit different. But the breastplate here is of faith and love. Faith in Christ alone for your salvation. Obviously the Gospel. You've got to have a biblical faith. You also need to trust in God's promises and, and, and trust in the Word of God and have the Word of God protect your heart so that we're not drawn away by temptation. Our faith grows through the Word of God, so we need to stay in the Word for sure. And then he adds to that faith and love. Love is the outworking of faith. Without love, faith is dead if we're not manifesting an element of love. The two must go together. John will say, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, but rather love God because He first loved you. So we're to love God, we're to love our neighbor, we're to love one another. But faith and love guard the heart. That's the breastplate. And that's what we need to cover and protect our heart from the invasion of error and apostasy. We need faith that is biblical and we need love. And the two need to go together to appropriately protect the heart of the believer as we wait for Christ to come back. In addition to the breastplate, we need a helmet. And here the helmet is the hope of salvation. And by salvation, what he has in mind is the, the end time salvation. It's when we get glorified. It's when Christ comes back and we, we enter into the consummation of our salvation. It's not, uh, it's not a hope as if, well, it may or it may not. It's a confident conviction that Christ will return, and when Christ returns, we will enter into the fullness of glory. That's the hope of salvation. It's an absolute certainty because it's based upon Christ. And He is our hope. And that hope of salvation is a helmet to protect our mind. Too often times the world wants to seduce us with all of its treasures and all of its, its pleasures but all of that's fool's gold. It's not real. It won't last. But if you're wearing the hope of salvation as a helmet, then you know that the true riches are, are with Christ in glory. And whatever we have here is temporary. So don't make an idol out of it. Don't worship it as a God. But it's the hope of salvation, the hope of glory, that helps us to keep all of our earthly blessings in its proper place. This helmet can help us keep our focus on the importance of living for eternity. It can also give us joy when we think of Christ coming back and 
not fill us with dread, but give us great joy. It can revive us in times of discouragement and hardships because I know that one day my trial will end and I will be with Christ in glory forever and ever. And it can revive us and encourage us. And again, it can just protect us from so many of the snares that the world would seek to to drag us into. So Paul says, we're of the day, so let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Some of the things I think that, uh, just kind of in wrapping this up by way of a few applications, is that having read what Paul says here to the church about how they are to prepare, stay prepared for the coming of Christ, they obviously need to not be asleep, they need to be alert, one. Number two, not be drunk, but be sober. And then number three, put on the breastplate and the helmet of the armor of God. And having said all of that, the sad reality is that many professing Christians actually belong to the realm of of darkness and not the light. And when Christ does come back, they will sadly join the ranks of the unbelieving because their lives revolved around themselves. They were oblivious to the coming of Christ. There's no awareness of God in their daily decisions. They're not interested in pleasing Christ. They're only interested in pleasing themselves. And they are not prepared. And they're living in darkness. They may claim to be a Christian. They may come to church. But when Christ comes back, they will be shocked and terrified. He will catch them unprepared like a thief. They'll be off guard. And they'll be destroyed with the rest of the wicked. And I think that's a warning. It's a warning to, to all of us. Make sure that you have a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you're seeking to live for Him. A second application is just that Paul is emphasizing so much here the importance of Christians, believers who are in the light, who are sons of light and sons of day, to be ready, watching, and waiting for Christ's return. I don't think that means that every morning you get up and open your newspaper, get online and check the news, see how many earthquakes or wars that are going on uh, currently. I don't think that's really what he has in mind. I don't think you have to uh, go online and check that rapture alert website and try to get updated. Are we getting closer or are we not? But there's still, in light of that, In light of the exhortation, we still need to be watching and waiting for the Lord's return, even though we can't pinpoint it. We know generally some general ideas. The apostasy has to happen. Man of lawlessness has to be revealed. And then when Christ comes back, He'll judge him. But there's no way we we can be precise. But we still need to be ready and watching. And the church will be ready because the church will be watching. If you're not watching and waiting, if you're not alert, then you need to get alert and be watching and waiting so that you don't find yourself when He does come back 
being in the darkness and in the night. So I think this is, these are strong encouragements to us to, to live and walk with Christ every day. That's really kind of the hub of being prepared. It's not just, you know, reading all books on eschatology. and It's just living for Christ. Walk with the Lord and you'll be prepared. I love the way F.F. F. Bruce stated it. He said, It is on the ungodly, however, that the day will break with such unwelcome suddenness. He's talking about Christ coming like a thief. That's only on unbelievers. Believers will be prepared for it. Not because they know when it will come. They do not know. But because, and then notice this, what he says, to live the Christian life is to be permanently ready for the great day. Others may remain in the darkness and fall asleep. Believers live in the light and stay awake. Unhealthy excitement is discouraged. Moral alertness and sobriety are enjoined. In other words, the best way to be prepared for the coming of Christ is to live your life for Christ. Yeah, we'll sin, we'll fall short. We confess it, we get back in line. We walk in the light as He is in the light. When we find that darkness has entered into my heart, I confess it, I renounce it, I pray for more grace, I get back in the Word of God, I renew my spiritual disciplines, and I get back walking with the Lord. If you do that, that's the heart and soul of being prepared for Christ's coming. That's what F.F. Bruce is saying. So, how do we get prepared again? for the coming of the Lord? Well, I close with these four thoughts. And this is based upon what Paul has said here and other places. Number one, you need to make sure that you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you want to be prepared for the Lord whenever He comes back, you need to be sure that you know the Lord. And that you're not in darkness or you're not in unbelief. But you need to to come to the Lord and, and confess your sins and turn from them and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Believe in Him. And by His grace, seek to follow Him. If you have not trusted in Christ, you're unprepared. And when He comes, you will find Him coming like a thief and you will be destroyed. So trust the Lord for salvation. Secondly, again, seek the Lord. Seek to live for Him. Make it your ambition to to please the Lord. When the Spirit convicts you that you're not, acknowledge it and try to reorganize and reorder your life. John tells us, walk in the light as He is in the light. And you'll not walk in darkness. So seek the Lord. And if you do that, you'll be prepared. If you belong to the light, this is what you will do. By the grace of God, you will do this. Not perfectly, but this is the general direction of our life. If you're truly a son of light and son of day, your heart wants to please the Lord. And if it doesn't, then it may indicate that you're still in the darkness. Examine your heart. Test yourselves. To see if in fact Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. Number three. Think. And in this I'm I'm emphasizing just 
Just think about the glory of Christ's coming. It's not something that we probably dwell on much on a day-to-day basis, but it's certainly profitable at times to just think about what it's going to be like when we get to see Jesus face to face. Just what an incredible experience that's going to be when Christ comes back and the dead in Christ will be resurrected, will be raptured and transformed into glory and will forever be with Christ and will gaze upon the face of Him who loved us so much that He came and sacrificed Himself, bore our sins, bore the full wrath of God that we could be saved. And one day we're going to get to have fellowship and love Him and worship Him with a heart that is totally unencumbered by sin and worldliness as it oftentimes is now. Peter exhorted his writers, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That grace of glory. All that we have to look forward to. Think upon those things. Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. And as we begin to think more of the joy of seeing our Savior, then it's going to help you to live a prepared life. For the unbeliever, when Christ comes back, He will come as a thief and strip away everything that they thought was worthwhile. Every gain, every treasure that they had, He'll take it all away from them. But for the believer, Christ comes adorned like a king with hands heavy laden with heavenly glory. And when He comes, He'll lavish that upon us and we'll be transformed and glorified and our bodies will become like His body in the sense that it will be glorified. For the church, the day of the Lord is a day of victory, a day of vindication, a day of glorification. So think about those things. And lastly, live in joyful expectation of His return. Be alert. Be watching. Anthony Hokema says, the believers should live in constant joyful expectation of Christ's return. Though he does not know the exact time of it, He should always be ready for it. So be living in light of the glory of Christ's return. You know what the very last verse in the Bible says? The very last verse that is intended to just echo in our minds. It's the very last thing we hear the Holy Spirit saying as He closes the book on our canon of Revelation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what we should remember. That's what we should be thinking about. That is our hope of the glory that comes. Don't let creation outdo us. You know, in Romans 8, Paul says that creation is waiting eagerly and anxiously longing for the return of Christ. Why are they? Why is creation... So longing for Christ's return because that's when the children of God enter into their glory. 
And it's at that time that creation will enter into its glory. At the same time, when Christ comes back and we are glorified, the creation is waiting for that day. Because when we're glorified, creation gets glorified. And so the cosmos now, in a figure of speech, is standing on its tiptoes, watching and waiting for Christ to to come back. Waiting for its glory. And should we allow the earth and dirt and dust and rocks to have a greater anticipation of Christ's return than us who have so much more to gain? We should not. When Christ comes back, all of our sorrows will be turned to gladness. All groaning will be replaced with glory. So in summary, the second coming for unbelievers will be a day of terror and judgment. On that day for them, the day of salvation is over. No more chance to repent. Payday has come. And there will be no warning and there will be no escape. They live in the realm of darkness now and will face an eternity of darkness then. And so this is why today is the day for us to still proclaim the Gospel with boldness. Because today is the day of salvation. And there's only a number, a limited number of them left before Christ comes back. And give us the love for the lost around us that we can share the love of Christ and the hope of salvation that's found only in Him. But for the believer, the day of the Lord will bring great excitement and joy to the living saints and those who are asleep in Jesus. They're dead. Because then we'll enter into the joy of our Master and the glory of His grace so that now we should live in the realm of light and day because one day we will enter into the eternal day and have the eternal light of heaven which will be found in Christ who is the light of the world and the new heavens and the new earth, the heaven that we will inherit, there will be no need for the light of the sun or the moon because it will be full with the light of Christ. The light of the Lamb will be all the light that we need. And we are sons of light and sons of day and we inherit that glorious day of light to come. So beloved, be alert. Be watchful. Be sober. And put on the armor of God. And you'll be prepared for whenever Christ comes back. And may the Spirit help us to do that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we again thank You for the Apostle Paul's encouragement to the church to stay vigilant, to stay watchful, to stay alert. Lord, we don't know when You're coming back, but we know You're coming back. And Lord, we need Your Spirit to help us to live in such a way that we are prepared. We are sons of light and sons of day. We will be prepared, but we still need Your Spirit to, on a day-to-day basis to give us that practical grace so that we can be awake and alert, that we can be sober-minded, that we can put on that, those three glorious virtues of faith and love and hope and live our life seeking to please You every day. And when You come back, Lord, You will not come back like a thief to Your church because we're watching 
and we're waiting and we're looking and we're alert. So Lord, may it be so in your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.